Welcome to the Awakening Church Podcast. We exist to awaken this generation to new life in Christ. Thanks for tuning in. To find out more, go to awakeningchurch.com. If we haven't met yet, my name is Chris, and I'm one of the pastors here on staff at Awakening, and we're so glad that you've joined us today. We're starting Advent, a special season, my favorite time to be a pastor, because It grounds us in the promises of God. The season of Advent grounds us in what God has said he will do. And our Advent teaching series is looking at what God has said, what God has blessed. We're looking at the Beatitudes, a famous passage at the start of what Jesus' great teaching, which has been called the Sermon on the Mount. And we're calling this season Bless Up because... Jesus is going to be blessing people in this passage we're going to look at today. And as he extends his blessing, he's going to extend his blessing on a surprising group of people. He is going to bless up those who are lowly. He's going to be blessing up the people that we in society have often put down. And he will actually controversially be putting down those our society has blessed up. You see, Jesus' kingdom and his ways and his promises seem to be a little backwards. But upon further inspection, they are deeply, deeply true. I want to warn you, because of this, because of the upside-down nature of Advent, because Advent is so much different from Christmas time, because the bells and whistles of Santa at the mall is so different from Advent historically in the season of the church, this will be a difficult message. But I believe it will also be comforting. That's the season of Advent. Like I said, we're going to be looking at this, this beginning to the Sermon on the Mount, the very entry point to the Sermon on the Mount. And this is actually starting us, Advent is starting us in a long season as a church. We're going to go for months inspecting and meditating slowly with the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 through 7, asking this question, what if, as a church, we deeply looked at and meditated upon the greatest teaching of all time? What would happen if we did that for months? How would this change our lives? You know, historically in the church, Advent is the start of the new year, the new church calendar year. And so in some ways, this is a fresh beginning. In some ways, you might think the year is winding down, but the church is kind of starting to wind up. And so as we do that, we want to look intently at the Sermon on the Mount. What does it mean? What is his main message? If you've never read the Bible before, the Sermon on the Mount comes in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And the best way I could tell you is it's it's Jesus' greatest hits. It's his his main message, his, his almost stump speech that he would go around telling everyone the good news of the kingdom of God. He would kind of say this. Uh, Matthew calls it the Sermon on the Mount. It's found in Matthew 5 through 7. Luke calls it the Sermon on the Plain. It's found in Luke 6. And some may ask, well, did he give it on the mount or on the plain? And the answer is yes. He gave it on the mount. He gave it on the plain. He gave it in the valley. He gave it next to a garden. He gave it in somebody's house. He gave this teaching all over. And the gospel writers recorded it in various passages. This was his main message. The reason Matthew puts it on the mount is to try to connect Jesus with the Old Testament. As Moses went up to the mount to give the great commandments to the people of Israel, the Ten Commandments, so Jesus walks up to the mount and gives his great commandments for his new kingdom. What would it look like if we were to inspect this sermon on the mount? Well, 
We're going to just take a very short part of it this morning. And so if you've got a Bible, go to Matthew chapter 5 with me, and we will begin our journey in the Sermon on the Mount and see what it has for us during Advent. Open your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. I'm actually going to start just a couple of verses before in order for you to get the scene. Today we're going to set the scene, and we're just going to look at the first two benedictions, the first two blessings, the first two beatitudes that Jesus pronounces upon people. And then we're going to take it from there through the rest of this series, walking through each of the Beatitudes and just slowly meditating on them and seeing how it might change us. So actually, yes, Matthew 4, verse 23, join with me if you can. It'll be on the screen. Matthew 4, 23, it says that he went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So... His fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. And so, chapter 5, verse 1, seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, he went up on the mountain, and he sat down. His disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. We're just going to take the first two benedictions, the first two blessings, to try to see what could God be teaching us? What could Jesus be teaching us in this season? I've got four questions to kind of guide our time in order to meditate more deeply on this passage. The first is this. What is this kingdom that Jesus is speaking about? It says in chapter 4, verse 23, that he went around, quote, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom. In chapter 5, verse 2, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, and he says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are these phrases that are used interchangeably in the gospel of Matthew. And actually throughout scripture. But Matthew, it's a major theme. He's trying to show us how much Jesus talked about it. It's all over the gospels. And the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven is not where you go when you die. It is not the ethereal heaven that you will ascend to one day. Anything like that. It's actually a present reality. And if you could define this, the kingdom of God, in one sentence, I think Jesus would have been the first to do it. But he didn't. Strangely, he never says the kingdom of God is and one sentence. Instead, he says the kingdom of God is like, and he tells tons of stories, tells all these parables. And so actually in chapters like Matthew 13, there's an entire section of just parable and story after story. Kingdom of God's like this, like this. Well, scholars over time have collected those stories and studied those stories and thousands of years of church history, and they've tried to put it together. You see, the kingdom of heaven, Dallas Willard says, is the range of God's effective will. The kingdom of God is where the stuff of heaven meets the places on earth. 
The kingdom of heaven is, Jesus would say, in your midst. And you see it and you don't see it. In other words, on earth, you kind of see the kingdom of heaven breaking in into places like light through the windowsill. Instead of one sentence, as Jesus told these parables, he said, if you have ears to hear my kingdom, you'll hear, which is an interesting phrase. I think the kingdom is kind of like Christmas music. Follow with me. You know, as, as, as we're in this unique season, it's a little bit like the melody of a Christmas song. The time of year is familiar, this time of year. It's familiar with like melodies, vocabulary that we only use during December. Well, and if you're crazy before that, but we can pray for you later. Um, It's these strange words like hark and decking the halls and trolling the ancient yuletide carol. When have you ever said that in July? What are you doing tonight, bro? thinking about trolling the ancient Yuletide Carol, my bro. (laughs) Just not going to work. The point is, though, you hear those melodies and those words during a particular time and season, and you know instantly it's regarding Christmas. And it's like this melody that you pick up on that you then hear all over. You walk into department stores, and you're in your car, and your Pandora station changes, and all this stuff all of a sudden starts to tune you in. You have ears to hear Christmas music. And so wherever you go, you can hear it. That's like the kingdom of God. It's like wherever you go, you're going to start to see that sounds like Jesus. And you're going to be at a, you know, a banquet and raising money for refugees, and you'll be like, this sounds like Jesus. Or you'll, you'll be in traffic, right? And you'll just flip on the radio station, and you'll start to you know, hear good news all of a sudden about somebody doing something amazing and generous, and you'll be like, that sounds like Jesus. You'll meet someone in poverty and begin to see where Jesus is breaking in. You see, you'll start to hear the things of Jesus. You'll see a relationship reconciled, a marriage healed, and you'll be like, that sounds like Jesus. It's because you will have the melody of the kingdom. And what I want to encourage you with is that as we walk slowly and meditatively through the Sermon on the Mount, that we will actually learn this melody. So it's not that you've got to learn it today. But take time with the teachings of Jesus and you'll learn it. You'll learn his vocabulary. You'll learn his melody. And all of a sudden, you'll start to see the kingdom breaking in in the most surprising places. So stay with us and hang with us as we learn what the kingdom is. The other term that we need to understand is this term blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? Because he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What is this blessing he's giving? I need to teach you some Greek, right? Okay, in the original Gospels, this word blessed is the Greek word makarios. Can you say it? Makarios. Try it. Okay, you learned Greek today. Good job. It's often translated blessed or it's translated happy, the old famous King James Version. Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. For a Jewish rabbi, saying this word makarios would actually be very common. It was a common sermonic device. In fact, in the Old Testament, there are other Beatitudes. If you look back at Psalm 1 or Psalm 119, there's these famous benedictions of blessed is the man who, or blessed is the woman who does this. And this is the kind of teaching that rabbis would do. And scholars throughout time have tried to translate this different ways for us to understand because blessing has turned to be such a churchy 
word. It's difficult to understand what it might mean. Here's a couple of them from Pennington and Willard and McKnight. They'll be on the screen. Pennington talks about human flourishing, that actually the blessing is upon those who are flourishing, those who will flourish, those who will go the right direction. Dallas Willard says this is, the word makarios is, is uh, answering the question, who's really well off? Who really has a good life? And so when Jesus says makarios to the poor in spirit, he's actually saying these are the ones who are well off. When he's saying true happiness and flourishing for a good life, like Scott McKnight says, he's saying, man, the, those who mourn are experiencing a kind of happiness and flourishing that others are missing out on. When we replace these words, all this, with the word blessed, we start to see the unexpected, upside-down nature of the kingdom of God, which is that Jesus points to those that we put down, and he says, you're headed in the right direction. He looks to the poor, and he says, you're going the right way. He looks to those who are mourning, and he says, you're doing well. You will flourish. When, see, this is what's upside down about it. Because actually, when you and I look at someone who is poor, we actually have a different phrase. We actually say, they're not well off. We look at those who are mourning, and we say, they're not flourishing. We say, oh, they're not doing well. But Jesus looks at these people that we say that about, and he says, but they are. They're blessed they're flourishing, they have a good life, they're headed in the right direction. How can this be true? How is it possible that those who are poor in spirit and mourning could be blessed? This is the third question. How is it possible that the poor in spirit are mourning? It's interesting. When Jesus looks at these terms, he looks at them actually maybe differently than you might. When you read Blessed are the Poor in Spirit, there's something that happens to us as Westerners, which was we immediately want to spiritualize this term. We want to look at the poor in spirit and have it be divorced from our economics. We would like for there to be a bifurcation between how much money we have or do not have and our spiritual life. Because we like to categorize things, but the truth is the Bible doesn't cleanly categorize things like that because the Hebrew worldview was much wider than that. Additionally, you know, in Luke's version of these Beatitudes, it's a little more direct. Luke says this in Luke 6.20. He just says straight up, blessed are you who are poor. And no, that is not a Greek trick where it's like he really means poor in spirit. He really means economically poor. He says, blessed are the poor for yours is the kingdom. And then he pronounces a woe or a kind of like, watch out. Woe to you who are rich, rich, for you have received your consolation. This is the strange reality of Jesus' world, that your economic situation is inextricably linked to your spiritual situation. It's a truth that is difficult to swallow. It's a truth that Westerners would like to push back on. You see, if you read the Bible, the whole Bible, the teaching that the poor are blessed should not be surprising to you. It's actually a melody you've been hearing the whole time. Read Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Isaiah, Proverbs, Psalms, the, the wisdom literature, the history literature, the, pro, the prophetic literature, all of it in the Old Testament. You would come to the understanding that, yeah, that sounds about right. The poor are blessed. 200 plus passages in the Old Testament are about caring for the poor. Did you know the New Testament shows a similar attention to it? The people of Israel were given laws to protect the poor. Leviticus 23, 22, I have these in your notes. These are just a couple of the 200 plus passages about the blessing of the poor. 
In Proverbs, we show a clear teaching that to lend to the poor, it actually means to lend to the Lord. And it says that if you ignore the poor, you insult God. The prophets rebuke the nation of Israel for ignoring the poor in Isaiah 59, Jeremiah 22, Ezekiel 16. That's just a small handful the prophets get livid at the way that Israel treats the poor. The poor have always gone first in God's world. In God's kingdom, they always go first. It's actually commentators throughout time have called this the preferential treatment of the poor. It's a very common teaching. If you've been instructed in the melody of the kingdom, when you see a poor person, you will not think about what they do not have, but what they do. You'll strangely start to hear a music that you've heard in scripture. While materially rich people have things that materially poor people do not have, there's something spiritually that poor people possess that rich people don't. What do the material poor, materially poor have? They have a spiritual advantage. Jesus puts it this way. He actually laments. He says, how hard is it for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God? It's like a camel going through the eye of a needle. It's so hard for rich people to understand. And for you to think that spiritual poverty has nothing to do with material poverty is simply to reveal that you've never really known a poor person. Or maybe you yourself have not been poor. It's a strange revelation that God's trying to maybe unearth in your life. In a world where we call poor college students the person who drives their parents' car and is still on mom's insurance and at the end of the season will get a job that pays rent with a degree that 98% of the world's population would uh, love to have or have access to, we need this word. See, we have a weird view of poverty. Because when you know poor people or when you yourself have been poor, truly poor, you realize how deeply connected economic poverty is with spiritual poverty. And I know right now is the time all the defenses fly up. I, I get that. But allow the Spirit of God to just let the Word sit with you for just a little bit. Let the, let the Word of God just sit with you for just a little bit. You, you might say, well, Chris, I see poor people do terrible things all the time and take advantage of people. I say, really? More than rich people? <laughs> we just prosecute, we just don't prosecute white-collar crime in this country. That's just how it works, okay? We, we don't. And I think, just in my experience, the sins of the rich and the poor are the same. It's just the poor that know that better. Because when you're rich, you justify your behaviors through material and economic advantages that poor people just don't have. Jesus' teaching is not, hear me very carefully, is not that poor people are better than rich people. It's just that they're closer to the vicinity of the kingdom of God. It's just they're nearby. They have a door wide open that the rich are trying to shut. They're trying to satisfy themselves because someone with resources of money, power, and status and who are learned people, they've learned other ways to get their needs met. And so they leverage resources and prof profound relationships to buy themselves out of problems. Spiritual poverty and economic poverty are interrelated. Your money affects your spirit. When you're poor in cash, you're poor in spirit. When you're middle class in cash... You're middle class in spirit, as Tim Keller has said. And strangely, what the Bible teaches 
is there's only really one way out of a middle-class spirit. It's to come in close contact with the poor in spirit. There's just no other way. I wish there was. I wish there was a way I could make this uh, economically viable and make it sound nice to the Silicon Valley and Americanize this, but you, you simply need to understand that it's in the poor that we see Jesus. Jesus actually says, whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. In other words, when you clothe the naked, when you feed the hungry, you're doing that to Jesus Christ. It's that literal in his mind. It's in the poor we see Jesus, we see his kingdom, we start to hear his voice. When you step into poverty, take a step into a relationship of somebody who is not, do not, does not have a lot, you actually take a step closer to Jesus. This is why we have the Del Mar Giving Tree for you out here. You see, these are stories of kids. Man, we heard some heartbreaking stories this week of children who came in here with nothing. And a step in with the Del Mar Giving Tree is to take just a little bit and to look at poverty and to realize how much you may have, but also how you can contribute and join in with those who do not have a lot. It's just putting you in closer proximity with the work of God, with the kingdom of God, stepping into that blessing that God promises. Blessed are the poor in spirit, that by you sacrificing a little bit of your economy for a little bit of somebody who doesn't have what you have, you would be able to understand what Jesus is teaching when he says, blessed are the poor. You would be able to see and fall under that blessing. You know, I grew up in a middle-class family and not an overtly Christian environment. I didn't know a lot of poor people growing up. In, in high school, uh, I had a number of experiences. I, I went to a Catholic high school, and uh, they, they did a lot around social justice and the poor. And I got a lot of experiences that really shaped me to where when I was really, really young and ordained, I was ordained at a very young age. I was 20 years old, and I was working at this church, and I was, um, I was inspired to just start working with the poor. And um, I was just 20, and I was leading this little young adults group, college group, and we would study the Bible on Sundays, and then on Monday nights, we would go into downtown Portland, and we would serve uh, homeless street kids. Portland, actually, I think to this day, has the largest number of homeless street kids, youth, per capita in the nation. There's more poor kids per capita in Oregon than any other place. It just became, particularly in the early 2000s, when I was doing this work, it became this hub of activity where a lot of people would move and a lot of kids uh, 25 and under would move. And um, I just remember meeting some of my first friends, some of the first friends I had that didn't have a lot, that were sleeping on the streets, that were um, kicked out of their homes because they were gay or kicked out of their homes because they were mentally ill. And they were put on the streets and we would feed them on Monday nights and we'd have dinner with them. There'd be about 40 of them, about 10 of us. We partnered with this great organization. I remember meeting this guy, Carlin. You know, he's this very proper, he always looked like he did not look homeless, but he didn't have anything. He would come in, he, had, he would sometimes wear a tie, he had these really kind of nice glasses and he would come in and you'd kind of get to know him and he had this kind of you know, uh, countenance about him that was interesting. And after a while, you started to realize he was schizophrenic and he would tell you this because every car that he would see would either be black or white. And, and he was sleeping on the streets because he was kicked out because his dad thought he was crazy and he kicked him out of his house. 
You know, I remember meeting my friend Robert who would come in and Robert would come and he'd be like super crazy sometimes. We'd have to kick him out and other times he'd come in super somber. And mixture of mental illness and drug use had put him on the streets and he was totally erratic. One day I remember Robert coming in, you know, keep in mind, this is like some of my first years as a pastor. And I'm like, meeting him, he's like in one of his chill moods. So I'm like, Robert, how you doing? And he doesn't seem well. He seems downcast and low. And right when I said like, how, how are you doing? He just, the, he just burst into tears. He had like long, he had long hair, the scraggly beard. You know, he's probably my age at the time. He's probably 20. And he's crying and crying and crying. And I just, I put my hand on him and he said, I'm just tired of everything. I, I remember, I remember him saying this. I'm just tired of everything. And he said, I need you to pray for me. And I prayed this worthless prayer. I didn't know what to pray. But I'm telling you this story because I'm trying to show you how economic poverty and spiritual poverty are one and the same. You see, Robert was tired of everything, and he came to a place that had food and prayer. When I'm tired of everything, I watch Netflix. When you're tired of everything, you can buy something. When you're tired of everything, you can go get drinks with some friends. You can go have a nice coffee. You can sit in a warm house. When Robert was tired of everything, he had nothing. You see, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Robert knew something that my middle-class spirit did not. And for me to take a step towards that was for me to take a step towards Jesus. Robert Lupton wrote reflections on 40 years of inner-city ministry in Atlanta. He says this, I need the poor for what? The question exposes my blindness. I see them as weak ones needing to be rescued, not as bearers of the treasures of the kingdom. That's what Robert did for me that day. He was bearing treasure of the kingdom of God to me. Skip down. I overlook what the Lord saw clearly when he proclaimed the poor to be especially blessed. I selectively ignore the truth that moneyed, empowered, and learned ones enter his kingdom with enormous difficulty. When you come in contact with someone who is poor or when you yourself experience true poverty, it brings you to the entry point of the kingdom of God, which is desperation. It brings you to the point of humility, which is the one thing you need as you approach Jesus. You don't need money. You don't need a middle-class spirituality. You don't need mindfulness. You don't need meditation. You need Jesus. You need the living God. And that's all you need. And, the, and when you come into contact and relationship with the poor, it wrecks your middle-class spirituality. It's like fasting. When you fast, you deprive yourself purposefully to engage your body, your physical body, with a spiritual reality that you desperately need God. Likewise, when you know the poor, when you have friends who are poor, it brings you in contact with your, the economic reality and the spiritual reality that everything you have and everything you need is from God. And see, it's in these moments and in this process that actually leads us to mourning. Jesus says, blessed are you who mourn. 
You see, to be a mourner in this context is not to be sad about a loved one who passed away. It's to feel the weight of what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus says, blessed are you when you weep while the rest of the world is laughing. While everyone's buying each other Christmas gifts and putting on the holly jolly, you understand the weight of the world, that there are true needs. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, while the world keeps holiday, they, the mourners, they stand aside. And while the world sings, gather ye rosebuds while ye may, they mourn. Listen to this line. They see that for all the jollity on board, the ship is beginning to sink. The world dreams of progress, of power, and of further. But the disciples meditate on the end, the last judgment, and the coming of the kingdom. To such heights the world cannot rise. Does injustice ache your heart? You're blessed. Does the news cause you grief and pain? Jesus says you're flourishing when you engage your emotional life with the passions of God. You know, during last series, Ryan told us to pray, God, break my heart for what breaks yours. You remember this? Break my heart for what breaks yours which is just what Jesus is talking about when he says, blessed are the mourners. But see, some of you prayed that prayer and all you've done since then is saturate your mind with media. You've prayed that prayer and then all you've done is saturate yourself with Netflix or sports to where you have no emotion left to give. What do you expect? If you saturate your life with pornographic images, reality television, internet memes, fantasy sports, pop culture... How will you ever care about the things of God? My mentor told me in the inner city of San Francisco when I was doing work there, he said, Chris, we have to reserve our emotions as Christians for the things of God. We have to pull back from the world so that when God brings up his causes, our hearts shatter. See, some of us don't even care about the poor people in our neighborhood because we're obsessed with things that don't even matter. We don't understand, as Bonhoeffer says, the ship is sinking. There there is no hope apart from God in this world, and that causes us to mourn. And so strangely, then, I know where you're at right now because it's where I'm at. How is this a blessing? Because all I've given you right now is guilt. (laughs) You're like, I feel terrible. Merry Christmas. (laughs) Yeah. How do we know? How can we be sure it's a blessing? Strangely, the final question, how can we be sure To be blessed, the blessed will receive what Jesus' promises. Well, I love this because it's actually found in the Christmas story. You may know the story. Luke chapter 1 is where it begins. Mary, the mother of Jesus, visited by an angel. When we meet her, Mary, and be very careful to note her economic status, Mary is a poor teenage refugee. She's not a princess. She's not in a high tower waiting to be rescued by a knight. She has no money, and her prospective husband that she's engaged to is a blacksmith, lower class. And she's tied to the economics uh, of her, her future husband. And an angel tells her, you will bear a son. He will be great and called the son of the most high. Mary's response is beautiful. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And after she receives this news, she goes to her relative, Elizabeth who's pregnant with another baby, John the Baptist. And in Luke 1, 41, we have this passage on the screen, the two women meet. And it says that Elizabeth looks at Mary and exclaims, blessed, 
are you among women? And blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And behold, in the sound of you greeting to my ears, the baby in my womb, she says, it left for joy. 45. And blessed is she who believed that there would be fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Are you seeing the word blessing all over this passage? You see, Elizabeth actually uses two different Greek words. The first blessing she gives is a kind of benediction. It's not makarios. It's a different word that says the favor of the Lord may be upon you, should be upon you. God's favor should be upon you. But then in 45, she switches the term to makarios. She says, flourishing. She looks at a poor teenage refugee and she says, you're in the right direction. She looks at someone who has nothing and no prospects that the world would question out of wedlock pregnancy. And she says, something beautiful is beginning in you. You are flourishing. You're headed in the right direction. You are blessed. And after that moment, Mary sings this song because, catch this, melody, she's hearing the melody. She's hearing the melody of the kingdom, and she's being encouraged in her own walk that maybe she is blessed. And she sings this song, My soul magnifies the Lord, Luke 1.47. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Look it. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me Makarios. They will call me flourishing. They will call a poor teenage refugee who's pregnant out of wedlock blessed. 52, he's brought down the mighty from their thrones, exalted the humble estate, he's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he sent away empty. What every commentator tells you about this song, nearly every commentator will tell you about the song, is that it's a near copy of a song from the Old Testament that another woman sang. Hannah sang a song before Samuel was born, the mother of Samuel, and she sings a song that's nearly identical to the one Mary sings in Luke chapter 1 except there's one major difference. Hannah's prayer is in the future tense. The Lord will guard me. The Lord will judge. The Lord will give me strength. This is 1 Samuel 2. You can look it up. And Mary's prayer is in the past tense. He has looked on the humble estate. He who is mighty has done great things. He has shown his strength. What are both these women celebrating from two different tenses and perspectives? They're both looking at Jesus. Hannah, pregnant, was thankful for a son, but was anticipating a savior who would reconcile the whole world to God. Mary, pregnant, was thankful for a son, Jesus, who would be the reconciler of heaven and earth. You see, one was looking from one perspective, one from the other. How do we know that the poor inherit the kingdom of God? How do we know that the mourners are blessed? How do we know that those who are lowly have the makarios from God? Because they always have. Because God has always been doing this, and he will always do this. This is how God works. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He lifts up the lowly and crushes the haughty. He exalts those in places and, re- and he exalts those in low places, wrecks those in high places. This is our God. He's a defender of the weak. He's the father to the fatherless, the protector of the widow, the champion. This is our God that you worship. And is this not what he has done in Christ? 1 Corinthians 1, 27. But God chose what is foolish in this world 
to shame the wise, a man on the cross being mocked and ridiculed. He chose that foolish thing to shame all philosophies, all wisdom, all middle-class spiritualities that are on the bestseller list. He chose the gospel of God to wreck the wisdom of this world. God chose what is weak in this world, a dying man on a cross, to shame the mighty philosophers. God chose what is low and despised in this world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? And this is important. So that no human being could boast. Why did God do this for you? Why has God worked this way in history? Why is the testimony of Scripture and this word into your life right now? So that you would not boast. So that you could access a poverty of spirit. This is what makes you poor in spirit the gospel of God, that he who is high and lifted up would become poor for my sake. Are you poor this morning? Are you mourning? Are the holidays not a season of joy for you, but a season of great difficulty? Are you without this year? Are you crushed this year? Are you desperate? Today, my friend, you are blessed because you're closer to Jesus than me. You have an access and a proximity to him that I desire to have. And are you rich? Are you satisfied? Are you comfortable this morning? Well, good news. Because Jesus has come. And through this word into our life, we get to join with those who are poor in spirit and become poor in spirit ourselves. And not boast in ourselves, but boast in Jesus Boast in what he has done, for he has done great things. And so if you're satisfied and comfortable this morning, come to Jesus, who though he was rich in spirit, became poor for you, so that in his poverty, you might become rich. Let's pray. God, we need you. We cannot do anything apart from you. And so help us now. God, I pray for those in this room who are struggling, who are mourning, for those in my community who are poor. And I ask you to show your face. Kick open the door to the kingdom, God, and show us that we are near to you and that you are near to us. God, I pray for those in this congregation who have a middle-class spirit. Would your gospel correct it, God, please? Could we look at the cross right now? Could we come to the table and receive the communion, receive the broken body and the blood poured out? And Lord, could the gospel Turn a middle-class spirit into a spirit of poverty that desperately needs you. God, I need your spirit to work in us and in our church right now. And so we ask you, Lord, come, do what you need to do. Work in us, God. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.